This episode is brought to you by The Daily Poem, a brief podcast which offers one essential poem each weekday. From Shakespeare and John Donne to Emily Dickinson and Robert Frost, The Daily Poem curates a broad and generous audio anthology of the best poetry ever written. Find it on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you dial up your favorite podcasts. And find out why listeners call it an oasis, thought-provoking, and a great daily excursion into beautiful language. Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Today we'll be exploring the Kalevala, the 19th century work of epic poetry compiled by philologist Elias Linrot from Finnish oral tradition and mythology. Joining me to discuss this great Finnish epic are Luke DeWolf and Dan Larrabee, the hosts of the Northern Myths podcast and dear friends of the show. Luke and Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us, Noah. Yeah, thanks for having us back. It's great to talk to you again. Yeah, it certainly is. It's uh, it's a great pleasure to have you back. Well, I know most who are listening are probably listeners of your podcast already, but for those who are not, can you tell us about uh, really what the Northern Myths podcast is all about and what you guys have been up to as of late? Certainly we can, yeah. The Northern Myths podcast is an archetypal exploration of the myths and legends of Northern Europe, and we cover primarily the poetic Edda from Norse mythology and the Kalevala from Finnish mythology, which we're going to be talking about today. And that's as good an introduction as any, I suppose, that as far as what we've been up to lately, the only real news on our end is that we we have started a, a Patreon, which is big for us because we're hoping to grow a little bit more here. But uh, other than that, we've been plugging away at the usual series that we've been well that we started over a year ago here and it's been a lot of fun lots of lots of fun digging into the Kalevala and the Poetic Edda as, as well as a lot of really excellent interviews which has been uh, really rewarding for sure so yeah that's what we've been up to and that's hopefully a quick cliff notes introduction to our show yeah that's really exciting and I'll put a link to both your uh, Patreon and your podcast in the description Below as always, but before we uh, carry on, I have to congratulate you both. I mean, uh, your podcast is—I uh, don't know if it's almost a year old or just turned a year old now, somewhere around there. Because I know we started at about the same time, but you guys have just experienced exponential growth, and I love the work that you've been doing um, with your different series. Certainly, the Poetic Edda, but particularly the Kalevala, because uh, as somebody who's really sort of like a mythology junkie. Um, there's really not a lot of information available out there, you know. So I think that's great. Yeah, we've been uh, we're pretty happy with uh, how things have gone. Uh, we the uh, growth has been, I'd say, unexpected on our end, but uh, it has let us do some cool things, talk to some cool people, and 
uh, read this amazing myth, the Kalevala. Like it, I know uh, Luke had more familiarity with it when we started, but uh, it's really become one of my favorite uh, things to read and study. And thank you, Noah. It's 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 really an honor coming from you as well, because you've certainly been a a fixture of this little community of Viking shows that's kind of cropped up and all rallied around each other. And uh, it's been really, really an honor to to get to be in the kind of the same sphere. And and I'll say that we we probably we started officially in, in February, but of 2018, but we didn't really start promoting seriously until about the April time. So we're coming up around what we would call the real anniversary of the show is kind of when we started to promote it. And you were actually a a big part of getting us going on that. We had no idea that there were anyone listening really for the first little while. And then, then you ended up tweeting at us or something like that. And that was just like, Whoa. And and we'd been following you too at the time. And it was like, Whoa. So that was, that was really exciting for us. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, it's the pleasure is all mine. I really do mean that, but I'm curious now that we uh, sort of have been talking about your your podcast a little bit. So you guys started Northern Myths um, almost officially a year now. Um, what really inspired you to start this podcast? I mean, were mythologies and sort of these oral traditions? And um, I know we'll get into some archetypes later. That's kind of the method that you use to exploring these mythologies. Was that something that you both had been passionate about for quite some time before you started the podcast? You know, for myself, I probably didn't have the the knowledge or the vocabulary to say, oh yeah, archetypes and, and you know, the hero's journey, all that kind of stuff. But I was, I definitely loved mythology. And I remember my like grade six public speaking project was on Vikings. So it seemed to, I've always had a sort of a, a love for, let's say, European mythology. And then, uh, you know, growing up, at least in, in Canada and Canadian schools, you don't necessarily get a lot of like pre-Christian history or pre-Christian mythology in school. I get a lot more Eastern, like Hindu, Hindu or Buddhist uh, teachings in your religion classes or whatever. So it was always kind of a, like a hobby of mine. Hmm. And then, uh, so I saw uh, the biblical lectures by uh, Jordan Peterson and thought, like, why? Oh, it's too bad there isn't something like this on Norse mythology and European mythology. And then, and then it was like, oh crap, did I just give myself a project? Because, you know, what, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying I'm nearly as educated or as smart as I'm not, but I thought maybe I can at least attempt to unravel some of these stories and, uh, and and as I did that, it really uh, oh, well. A lot of the things that I was seeing in the uh, the biblical lectures, and you know, that I had to start reading about archetypes and all that kind of stuff. Joseph Campbell, and everything was starting to line up in the European mythology, and I was like, oh man, there's something here. And then, of course, Luke was kind of doing the same thing at the same time. Like we were kind of doing it independently of each other. Just every now and then we talk about it and then we realized we were both like really into it. And then that's sort of how the, the podcast came about. And I think the, if you wanted to sum it up and we didn't know this at the time, but now that we've been doing the podcast for about a year, the, the sort of 
reason that we're doing it is that we ourselves are actually looking for the myth that we're living. And it, that's a, it's sort of a, a paraphrasing of uh, Carl Jung and actually Joseph Campbell put forward is that, you know, we're all living a certain myth, a certain archetype, and you want to know which one that is because it might be one that you don't want to live out, right? Because there are bad, there are archetypes that meet grisly ends. So it, uh, it's kind of become this weird uh, way of, I, I know for myself, I don't know if uh, Luke feels the same way, but you start kind of looking at your life through a mythological lens and being like, okay, what myth am I kind of living out right now? And who am I in that myth? And, you know, am I going to turn to stone? Am I going to meet some terrible end or am I going to be the hero that makes it to the other side? Yeah. That's so inspiring. Luke, do you care to add anything to that? Yeah. The only thing I'll add is, is that we, we've been talking about, we, we've been friends for, for quite a long time. So it's not like we, kind of found out about this and and got together and did a podcast without having that quite a few years of background kind of friendship and mutual interest in all this stuff as well. We'd actually talked about starting a blog originally was what we we thought to do at the time. And and it, it actually now that uh now that we've gotten to know him Fjorn with Fjorn's Hall and his blog and everything like that actually is pretty close to what we had originally talked about doing. But it turns out that I'm absolute garbage at writing at least writing to the degree that a blog would would have to take and getting to do this whole podcast thing that's kind of the substitute and if you haven't noticed i'm pretty stream of consciousness when it comes to what i talk about on the show and i'll bounce from idea to idea and that doesn't really work as a as a type of blog but we had also floated the idea of a podcast a while ago it just there was no there was no real direction as to what we would actually do. We just knew we wanted it to be about kind of Norse mythology, that sort of thing. Because that was that was always just a shared interest. But then it really was finding out about those archetypes that really was that catalyst. And I mean, exploring this has been just so amazing and getting to do this. And it, it really has been really quite the experience to get to learn about this stuff. And we always say we're we're not experts by any means. And so whatever we're doing here, this is just our best guess at putting these ideas together into the context that we're exploring, which has been these, these particular myths. And of course, there's other mythologies, other myths and mythologies that we don't cover, that others maybe do cover themselves and do it fairly well, fairly good job. But I think the stories that we've explored so far and that we plan to explore in the future give a pretty good picture and idea of what mythology looks like for anyone just getting into it and wanting to find something in their selves in these stories. Hmm. Absolutely. No, that's awesome. That's really a spectacular origin story. Now, I'm curious, you know, Northern Myths podcast and uh, archetypal exploration of the myths and legends of Northern Europe, why did you guys uh, decide to um, incorporate the archetypes into your podcast? I mean, how do you um, Sort of what benefits do you see with um, studying the mythologies through the sort of Jungian archetypes and uh, the work of Joseph Campbell as well? You know, we really wouldn't have a show without this archetypal interpretation because we wouldn't be adding anything new to these stories otherwise. And the thing about that, what what I really mean there is that these stories are fantastic, but if you just want to hear the stories we would suggest picking up the audiobook of Jackson Crawford's Poetic Edda translation and just listening him, to him tell it 
or Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology or something like that. Because the stories are great on their own, but understanding what the stories actually mean and what they're saying behind it is something that we think is actually of value. And I mean, when we started it, this show, it was really just about seeing all of these similarities and parallels that archetypes provide when they're analyzed in a a variety of different stories. We were seeing the parallels between, say, the biblical stories or the Mesopotamian creation myths or hero stories from virtually any mythology and what is in Norse mythology. But I think for me personally, I'm as well as this whole find out what myth you're living thing, I am also trying to find any elements of Northern philosophy in general that are somehow unique. And by exploring them in an archetypal context, my hope is somehow that we can see an, I guess, a, an enunciation of these ideas that shows something different compared to, say, Western civilization in general. It's, it's highly rooted in not only Judeo-Christian philosophy, but as well Greek and Roman. Those would be the more influential mythologies that have influenced Western civilization. And Eastern philosophy has its own has its own massive history that we can draw upon, and they have their own unique philosophies. And I'm wanting to find that as well in the, the northern sense. And so the only way that I can see to do that is through an archetypal perspective. And when you ask why to bring that into all these stories, it's really for me as as soon as as soon as I started to explore these archetypes to any degree. I'll, I'll even I'll even paraphrase Dr. Peterson a little bit here. When he said in his Maps and Meaning series of lectures, he said that he wanted to unlock the world of narrative for his students. And for me, and I think for Dan as well, absolutely that was the case. The world of narrative is unlocked. I feel like I see behind the curtain in in a in a sense because it's It's seeing the frameworks and the symbolism and the the symbology, the way it all works together. These stories now are so much more rich. I appreciate them so much more. And so exploring them through this podcast is so much more rewarding now that we have that perspective. And honestly, the show wouldn't exist without having found those archetypal ideas in the first place. How about you, Dan? What do the archetypes mean to you? Well, that's a... That's a, a deep question. It's I've I almost come to think of them as like a universal language that if I go and read a Hindu story and then I go read you know a story from an African tribe or uh, like First Nations in Canada, I can start to see the similarities and I can start for me I can start piecing together that aspect of human life that's permanent. There's so much in life that uh, it comes and goes and whatever, you know, the the top, let's say, band of today that the kids like, you know, it's going to be different in two months and you, maybe you'll never hear of whoever's popular again today, right? Like one hit wonder, that kind of thing. But with, the, with all of these stories, these stories have survived for thousands of years and they've survived 
throughout the world, they've survived war, invasion, genocide, like you name it, and they've survived it. So why, why have they survived it? Like that, that to me is a huge question. And I think it's because they're talking about something true, something that's kind of permanent, something that if you go throughout time, go throughout any region in the world, you'd find this commonality amongst all people. So, and that to me says, okay, you've got something valuable there because it can withstand whatever you throw at it and it, it still remains. Like that, that to me is amazing. And when you boil that down even further, that's where you sort of get the archetypes and the, these symbols, these ideas that people came up with independently of each other across the world because it's a part of shared human experience. And for me, that's just incredible that it's like this learning this language of, Oh, this is how you, you can be human. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I'm reminded of a uh, quote that I remember hearing uh, not long ago. I think it was by George Orwell and it went something like it uh, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And I think uh, that certainly um, has a lot to do with the fact that these poems and these myths have lasted so long. So that's really well said. I, I couldn't agree more. Well, you've had the opportunity to explore many of the Norse myths and poems of the poetic Edda on your podcast before. Uh, getting into the Finnish Kalevala, how does that compare in contrast to the poems of the Edda? Sort of what are the similarities and differences? Well, the, uh, the Kalevala, it's one of the biggest, I guess I'll say differences, but it's, it's not a huge difference, but the Kalevala was uh, created with a purpose and with, with a vision to like, an epic story. So it kind of, it, it flows together a lot more easily than the poetic edda, which they're, the poetic edda, with, and the prose edda, they have a, an overarching story, but it's, they're not necessarily in chronological order and they don't lead one into the other. It's not, uh, it's not like a unit. It's, uh, um, it's more like a collection. I, I think they'd call it like a cycle. Like it's a, in, in literary terms, it's more of a cycle. Whereas this or an anthology, whereas Calaval is like a, a single story told like, you know, part one, part two, part three, and, and through at least, as far as I can tell, I, I haven't read the whole thing yet, but uh, there does seem to be an episodic uh, feature to it, which is awesome because you get, you get cliffhangers and like intrigue and like, oh, what's going to happen next episode? And maybe just to add on to that a little bit, as far as the the way it contrasts pretty strongly, I think, with the, the poetic Edda, I've found that the Kalevala... And and maybe I'll, I'll I'll preface this with I I have read the Kalevala and this was kind of the first mythology that I really dug into I I seemed to have a, an odd fascination with Finland as I think through Finnish music getting exposed to some of that uh, when I was in my early teens and and that just kind of stuck like I decided to start learning some Finnish and I don't know I speak okay but I don't get I don't get to practice that often anyway but. The, the whole Kalevala, the way we've been digging into it, has really unlocked the 
it's it's very low level psychological if that makes sense like the the stories really dig into really dig into hard some of the most personal deep low level emotions and the ways that people interact with one another it's it's really been quite profound to explore it this way because in contrast with the poetic edda which really is a a high level mythology like it it covers the main things like the creation of the world the destruction of the world and everything in between is is very mythologically oriented now the the hero section of the poetic edda is of course a little bit different and the the sagas in general the norse sagas are a little closer i think in structure to the kalevala but the kalevala really has been playing with some psychological themes and concepts that i really don't think are explored nearly as deeply in the poetic edda as an example the the cycle of the of Jokahainen and Aino and Vainamunen in the, the Kalevala, this, this really ended up playing with ideas of the way the new generation takes on the old generation and tries to usurp it, overtake it, Vainamunen being the old generation, Jokahainen being this new young upstart who thinks he's just the greatest thing in the world. And he is unable to beat Vainamunen, who's old and steadfast and is really confident and he knows what he's doing and then it it also gets into ideas of the the fate and despair of the new generation through the character of Aino and it's just an incredibly tragic story and it's really on a on a personal level that it's at a very minimum not told in the same way in the poetic edda maybe there are some similarities in terms of say for example the death of Balder story from Norse mythology might play with some of the same sorts of themes but it's not exactly the same. And the way the Kalavala does it is, maybe it's the, the style of oral poetry is different and more conducive to guiding you through emotions and bringing in some more personal perspectives. But, and, and that's not to say it's, it's in any way better than the way the poetic edit does it. It just does it different. It explores these concepts in a different way. That's what I would say is a, a large difference between it and more Norse stories. Yeah, I totally, I can totally understand that. Well, I mentioned it briefly in the introduction, but can you tell us a little bit about how the Kalevala was created and the story of its author, Elias Linrot, the man who created this work? Absolutely. So a little bit about Elias Linrot. Yeah, so he... He was a physician by trade, a doctor, but he did have a passion for the mythologies of his people. And what he did was he went on these large expeditions in the middle 1800s to eastern Finland and what is today Russia and I believe into the area close to around Estonia. Essentially, he he went fairly far because maybe just for some geography, Finland was really settled on the coasts by, first of all, the the Swedish kind of overlord people who were in charge of society for quite a long time. But that was also where the main cities were and civilization really developed. But as you went further into the forests and the lakes, because Finland is known as the land of a thousand lakes, and it's really got an immense, immense wilderness. It's really similar actually to some of the areas in the the American Midwest and the 
the region across the border to Canada. It's really similar to that area, which is is possibly why there's there's quite a large Scandinavian population in general in those areas. They they found it quite similar to home. And uh, I know Thunder Bay, Ontario, is, has got a lot of Finnish people who, who settled there. And I believe there is, uh, it's it's either in Wisconsin or Minnesota, there's some, there's some large Finnish community there, I believe. But the, just for some geography, though, the eastern area of, of Finland or the area to the east of these, these coastal areas, this would have been the area that did not quite get Christianized to the level that the rest of the country would have been. And it's more remote, more tribal society at the time, definitely more of a traditional way of life. And that's where all of these poems that had survived as oral tradition for hundreds of years, that's where these poems still were. And there's pictures, there's a really cool picture of two brothers holding hands facing one another and they would sing to each other. This is how the Kalevala was originally performed. It was sung. There's a Kalevala melody, which is really, really hauntingly beautiful. And they would sing. They would sing these old, old songs, partially as a way of memorizing the poetry itself, but also because it's just fascinating and beautiful. And Elias Lindrup, he compiled as much as he could, essentially. He listened to these songs, he compiled as much as he could. And there are massive archives that go beyond the Kalevala proper that are archives of these original songs. And were I uh, more bold and much better at Finnish, because the language of the Kalevala in Finnish is archaic, it's quite archaic. Like it's not, it's not really that discernible from a modern perspective, certainly not from a, a foreign language learner's perspective. It's not nearly as accessible as modern Finnish. And it's also poetic as well. So, But these collections of stories, they were compiled by Elias Lindrod, and he took them and put them together into a cohesive narrative because there, there's multiple stories of the creation of the world, for example that he took together and fused into one thing. There's even some evidence that he, that Lundrop might have created some characters as amalgamations of some others. Uh, for example, the Ilmatar character at the beginning of the Kalabala may not have been the original creator of the world and she may have had a, a slightly different role. And so her use in that poem may have been Elias Lundrop and so this is maybe just to, to say that as he was compiling and bringing these narratives together, there is some level of change that Elias Lundrop made to these poems. And the level to which he took creative liberties isn't completely clear. I don't even believe there's a scholarly consensus on that. There just is some understanding that the story was modified and abridged a little bit to fit it into the already quite large 50 runos or poems that make up the Kalevala. But it was all taken from these areas in the east of Finland or what is now known as Karelia. And they were compiled from the people who knew it directly at the time, who didn't stop singing these songs for years, for generations. And so we really have a direct connection in a lot of ways to what would have been 
performed for hundreds of years. And even if Elias Sloan made some modifications to make it work, I believe he did have the spirit in mind. And he, he even says so in his introduction, essentially, that he, he really finds this stuff valuable. Like he's, he goes throughout all of the wilderness to, to compile everything from the hills, from the wind, from nature itself. And he's putting this in a little box of copper. And then he's taking from the box of copper all of these songs. And then he's going to sing them. He's going to sing them to his friends, to his family, and he's going to preserve them. And that we might better the generations for having listened to so are these are these songs basically oral traditions which would have been sung by would these have been the indigenous people of Finland? Yes, absolutely. These would have been the indigenous people of Finland. The, there are a couple of tracks of ethnicities that and this is going to go into a little bit of linguistics here, historical linguistics. The Finno-Ugric language group or broadly more broadly the Uralic language group is can very lightly be tied genetically to the people that would have eventually become Finns. This is a completely different group of languages from what is found in the rest of Europe. It's completely different. It's unrelated. There's certainly a different original origin anyway. And these languages are spread out through a large area stretching from northern Scandinavia. That's the Sami people all the way out to the far side of Russia around the Ural Mountains. Now, they're, they're not large. The tribes that still speak these languages throughout the area is, is quite small. They're all minorities in the areas that they, they exist, except in Finland, Estonia, and Hungary. Those are the modern languages that are most well-spoken and actually have countries based around them. But all of those peoples would have come from an area around the Ural Mountains originally, is supposed to be the original homeland. And eventually there were migrations east and west. The group that eventually became the Finnic group would have settled in the area around Finland a good three, 4,000 years ago at least. And that's around when they split off with the Sami people who would have been more into the reindeer herding up in the far north of Scandinavia. And they would have the Finnic peoples would have been more in the the forests is my understanding of this, and they certainly would have been the indigenous people of Finland for quite some time, very long time. But they they spanned a much larger area than they do now, and Slavic peoples and Germanic peoples in particular kind of boxed them in a little bit, and even in the areas that still have sizable minorities of speakers of say. Uh, Mari or Hanti or Komi, this is all in Russia, even those areas which have their own designated autonomous regions, they all speak Russian and the Russian ethnic population is like 90% or more in, even in those areas. So they're, they're quite small minorities outside of Finland, Estonia. You know, so when Linrot was going about uh, collecting these stories and compiling them into um, what is now the Kalevala, um, certainly, depending on which region he would have been in, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but these songs would have been sort of differing, and perhaps some of them would have um, agreed and disagreed with each other. So how did he, you know, 
create this work in a way that everything is sort of uniform and it all agrees and he can create one comprehensive narrative, if that is the case. You are correct about that. And the thing about it, though, is that these wouldn't have been quite so drastically different as maybe I'm making it out to be as far as the spread of the Finno-Ugric languages. These would have all, these peoples would have all been speaking essentially some dialect of Eastern Finnish, which, although from my perspective, can be a little bit hard to comprehend. Certainly, Elias Lundrod had a passion for the Finnish language and would have understood these dialects and the differences and all that. And so when he was compiling them, my understanding is that he did preserve a lot of the dialectal differences in the language. And that also gives the poetry some richness as well, as far as the breadth of the language used. But you're right, the, there would have been some disagreements as to certain elements and certain, certain characters would have been more emphasized in one version or another. I'm not sure about his process of how he compiled it all together, but that was his goal, was to create a cohesive narrative. And so the, the example of the creation of the world is actually one of those that the, for example, the hero Vainamunin, in the creation story in the Kalabala, he is born from his mother, Ilmatar, which translates as essentially lady of the heavens, lady of the air. And in some versions of the story, Vainamunin is actually the one who creates the world himself. And Ilmatar was inserted into this story by Lunrot in order to create a more cohesive narrative and something that made a little more sense based on the differing sources. There are others, and I would have to get into some Finnish sources a little more deeply that I, that I haven't read completely in order to give you a better answer in terms of what his process was. I do believe that's known somewhat, but the goal was to create a cohesive narrative that would make some sense. And not to spoil anything, but he ties it up in a pretty neat little bow at the very end of the Kalabala. We're going to take our time getting there because we're, we just recorded Runo 9, Runo 8, Runo 8, Runo 8. We just recorded Runo 8, I'm getting ahead of myself, and it's Runo 50 is the end. And so that's going to take certainly some amount of time to get there. But uh, I assure you, though, that that it gets tied up in a neat little bow and the the last passage of the Kalabala is one of my favorite bits of poetry and mythology essentially ever. It's, it's fantastic. But Lunro definitely went in there so that he could preserve these stories. And he, he archived everything too. That, that is the, my understanding is that he did archive a lot of these originals. And so you can go and compare different sources. But the Kalabala proper that was published was meant to be an accessible version of these stories that had a cohesive narrative that would be a vehicle for preserving and protecting and advancing the Finnish culture. Because at this time, they would have been under Russian rule. And it wasn't until 1917 that, along with the revolutions in Russia, that Finland eventually declared independence. It was essentially the only country that really, it, that really prevented itself from getting absorbed back into the Soviet Union when that started to get all together. Finland managed to stay independent even through it all. So. And part of this might be down to the national identity that was compiled with the Kalabala. That's absolutely fascinating. Very similar to Snorri Sturluson's prose Edda in some ways, right? Yes, I, I would say so. He, uh, Snorri certainly had a, a love for 
these uh, these old, old myths and stories, and he uh, he was looking to preserve them. He, I mean, he was uh, he was a Christian, so there is a, some influence, but most scholars think now that there isn't nearly as much uh, influence as some people might fear there is. But yeah, he, he was certainly um, interested in preserving these stories for the future and did some, at least did some massage to make it more palatable to the, the Christian rulers. But uh, I think for the most part, uh, sort of kept the stories intact. Yeah, certainly. Yes. Well, you know, talking about the uh, the sort of main characters in the Kalevala and looking at and looking at the Kalevala um, sort of through an archetypal perspective, um, let's start with you, Dan. Do you find yourself relating to a specific character or a particular um, section of um, the Kalevala, perhaps a particular runo, particular tale? I don't know if I necessarily see myself i mean i i like to think of myself as a hero of my own story but just as everyone does but um i know that reading uh the the tragedy of aino was particularly impactful and uh it was just really a downer like it, it's uh one it's a great it's a great story but you really feel the the, the pain of Aino. And so what's happening is Aino is Yokohainen's sister. And because Yokohainen lost to Vinawen in a magician's duel, he says, okay, okay, you won. You know, I offer you my sister as a prize for beating me. And then when Yokohainen goes home and tells his sister, his sister's understandably upset. But because of the, the cultural norms and rules, she now has to marry Vinamwinen. And, uh, you know, her family's trying to convince her that it's not actually going to be that bad, but she uh, she can't be convinced. And, I mean, this isn't really a spoiler, I would say, but to get out of it, she commits suicide. And it's just, like, you're, you're looking at her, she had, didn't really have much choice, and just everything was against her. And then she's like, okay, fine, then I'm taking this very permanent way out. And it's, uh, it, it's just like, it, it's a, a, a bummer of a story. Like it, it's not a happy story, but there, but it is, uh, I guess, archetypally it shows the, the pain of having to become conscious and how, when you decide to interact with the world with your eyes open, you're going to see a whole bunch of terrible things and it's going to be hard and it's going to affect you. But at least you're participating in the world rather than remaining unconscious and ignorant and not able to have any sort of understanding of your own life and your own position in the world. So it, 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 what, it, what the story does for me is it really makes the, uh, makes the case for the choice between becoming conscious or remaining unconscious or, you know, opening your eyes or stay or staying asleep. Like you, it says it gives you both options and gives you all the pros and cons 
and then you get to decide what uh, you know which one you want to pick. But it doesn't can't. There's no can no sugar coating. There's no there's nothing like nice or frilly or no ribbons. It's just like this is these are your options. You have to pick one and then live with it. Yeah, absolutely. How about you, Luke? Well, that story of the fate of Ino was particularly impactful for both of us. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that digging into that story and the surrounding couple of poems, it's really a, a cycle of about four poems that are all tied together. Digging into that, I'm not exaggerating, that kicked me into the underworld for a solid month. Like I really had to wrestle with some things to or- in order to understand that particular poem. And it was, it was tough to get through maybe on an archetypal level in terms of what I identify with, I really like that the characters themselves in the Kalabala are, they're not necessarily omnipotent deities. And it's not like Norse mythology has anyone that's really omnipotent, but I mean, Odin's pretty cool. He can do a lot of, a lot of good stuff. Vainamunin, which is actually, and this is kind of cool. Vainamunin and Odin are basically the, character inspirations for Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings, the two of them together, because they've got similarities, but some key differences, the two of them together really form that really iconic character. And it, it really shows that J.R.R. Tolkien, like he had some great, great inspiration from those characters. Now for Vagnamunin, what he really embodies on a symbolic level appears to be the social order, the order that has been keeping society from falling apart into chaos and the social order, which may be slowly starting to decay. And the thing that Vainamunin wants most is to be rejuvenated by the influx of potential through getting married to a beautiful woman who will bear children, who will take care of the household, which on a symbolic level means rejuvenating it as well and bringing new life and, and new meaning into it. That's what Vainamunin wants. And on a symbolic level, it really makes a lot of sense because it's, it's how anyone creates the, their future for themselves is by rejuvenating themselves when they grow stagnant. And Vainamunin has a lot in common with traditional heroes as well. He goes and does some heroic things, but on a symbolic level, he is also very much this, this pyramid of order, like this really, really strong character who is the top of his competency. The young generation can't not knock him off his perch, but he still needs to be rejuvenated. And that really is everything that Vainamunin is searching for throughout the entire Kalabala. We've only gotten through, I said, eight, eight runos so far where we've explored this incredibly deeply. And we'll visit with some other characters which may be more or less sympathetic in terms of their heroic capacity. But Vainamunin is the hero of the story. And Vainamunin, he really is going to be on a quest to get this rejuvenation into his life. And the, the thing he wants most is to find a bride. And that's why one of the reasons why the fate of Aino was so terrible is not only empathizing with this girl who really goes into absolute despair and chooses to 
die instead of to go marry Vainamunin, who by all accounts is the best man available in the world. But she goes and chooses to die. And Vainamunin is left without anything here in this case. And he's, he's pretty bummed out about it too. And so there's a whole another poem that isn't just about Ino's death. It's the one after, and it's about Vainamunin dealing with it. And there's, there's grief and there's, there's not knowing what to do. And there's going off and going and going fishing. There's going fishing to try and figure out what the heck to do next. And, Thankfully, by now, by the point that we've covered, Dynamoon is off on a new and exciting quest. And he's, but the thing that he wants most is to find a bride and rejuvenate the world. Now, if I may just ask, because uh, The Fate of Ino, I really enjoyed that uh, section of the Kalevala, um, both reading it and listening to the podcast episode on it. Um, if we're to just focus on this, uh, this one um, portion of the, the text for right now, um, if I may ask, what would it, what would happen if we were to look at that story, the fate of Ino, in terms of order and chaos? Because Ino clearly, um, you know, is victim to something that um, is out of her control, and um, she has two options, both of which are very grim, and uh, she chooses to take her own life. So, in terms of order and chaos, what does that mean? Well, it's. Uh... For Aino, she is choosing to stay in the unconscious. So in the, it's kind of like Sleeping Beauty, where, you know, Sleeping Beauty gets the, the kiss from the prince and wakes up. Well, Aino is choosing, you know, to get the kiss from the prince, but stay asleep. She doesn't want to, um, to mature, to grow up and to sort of face the world uh, as an, as an adult. So there's, She's kind. She's refusing. She's kind of refusing an invitation to order, and uh, saying that no, I'll, I'll remain in this chaos where it's kind of like in this chaos, everything is possible, both good and bad. It's uh, we call it undifferentiated chaos because it, chaos just it doesn't mean that it's necessarily bad. We often think of it as something that's bad, but yeah. it doesn't have to be. It can. Uh, incredibly great things can come from it. It's, it's just potential, right? And, and so she's, she's choosing to remain unconscious and just remain in potential. So nothing, things could happen, but they, they're not going to because for it to happen, there has to be some order injected into the chaos. And she's just refusing to, she's refusing to accept any order. And, what like why would you refuse order? Well, because by nature order is is oppressive, and the trick is to balance having both order. Uh, you you need enough order so that chaos isn't just destroying everything in its path, but you also need enough chaos so that the order isn't like strangling the life out of you. You need that that balance, and that and that's the the key with the hero, right? Is that the hero can balance between order and chaos and travel between both sort of like with ease. And that's why with Vitam Wynn being the symbol of, of order, he needs, well, he needs a woman, the feminine, uh, the, you know, the chaos to, to, to combine with basically literally to mate with so that 
you know, the combination of order and chaos can produce this being, this hero, that is like both of them equally. But, you know, in this case, she's, she's, she's refusing to do that and saying, no, I'm going to stay in the, the unconscious. And, and you see that because her method of suicide is drowning herself in, in the lake. And water is uh, a well-known and often used symbol of the unconscious and, and the chaos and the just sort of the, literally the building blocks of life kind of thing. So yeah, she, she falls to the depths of the, uh, the water and, and stays there and refuses to come out and take on that, that bit of oppression in order to become something more. Yeah. The only thing I'll add is, is just that the, the gist of this story, the, the real point of this particular story, it almost transcends simple order and chaos in terms of it's not really like they're battling one another. It's, it's that the individual has to battle with the responsibility that comes from encountering order. And we've started to see that in the poem we just recorded, Runo 8. It, it really starts to get into that the younger generation appears to be paralyzed by the responsibility that they have to undertake in order for their lives to mean anything. There's a, a real struggle between for, for these women staying in their father's houses, which really just means that everything's taken care of for them and they have no responsibilities. Maybe they have chores to do, for example. Like if we're shifting a little bit to a different character, the mythical maiden of Pohila, who is another object of Vainamainen's affection, possibly the compilation of, of more than one, but she, she is very industrious and gets work done before anyone else is awake. And that's fantastic. And, and having chores and things like that, that's, that's not the same thing though as having true responsibility and having to take into your own hands, the responsibility for your own life and for what you're going to do with your life. This story also really grapples with the idea of the responsibilities that women have, not, not just had, like the, the social context is important in, in that there was no birth control. Women essentially would have gotten married and gotten pregnant pretty much right away. And the rate of death and childbirth is pretty darn high. But the, the potential outcome of that is children and growing their children and and even have today where mothers were, say, no, I'll, I'll step back, that, that women who have great, fantastic careers, which would have been unaccessible at the time of the Kalabala, but even today, women with highly successful careers, often they start to want to have a baby, and then they take a step back from their careers in order to have a baby, and they get incredible amounts of fulfillment from that. and. The thing about it is that they have gone, these mothers have gone and, and embraced the responsibilities that they could undertake. And Aino chooses to not do that. She, she looks at the responsibilities laid out before her. She even sees and understands that Vainamainen is a good person to be paired up with. Her family insists on it but she refuses and she does not take up the responsibility. And we drew a lot of parallel with 
the current modern generation having a bit of a hard time getting itself going in terms of taking up responsibility and really getting into the world without without having been coddled for a very long time. So that's one of the themes that maybe it goes outside of ordering chaos in the sense that it's not just about encountering chaos and then bringing order to it. It's that you're forced with a, almost a choice between ordering chaos and by choosing to engage with the social responsibilities that comes with getting any benefit from society at all or going into the undifferentiated chaos and staying there and refusing to do your part. So it's, it was really a complex story. And that's, I think, why it took not just the, the really strong subject matter, but it also, its complexity really took a long time to get my head around. So it's quite the story. Now, um, if I may just ask one more question in regards to this story, you know, you, you mentioned that the fate of Ino does go outside the nor the basic understanding of order and chaos, which it really does. But um, if we're to attempt to compare, would you say that uh, order is complacency in this story? I mean, complacency uh, in Ino's unwillingness to marry and start a life with someone else and still continue to live under the roof of her father? You know, the interesting thing here is that Vainamoinen certainly does appear to have some degree of that particular complacency in that he doesn't do a great job selling the benefits of engaging with social order to Aino. And as well, Aino's family appears to be encouraging her to go pursue order, pursue engaging with responsibilities in social order, but they don't necessarily sell it as something that's beneficial for Aino. She starts to only see the grave responsibilities that could be there and the constraining aspect of order as well. Like there's, uh, I don't, I don't have it quite in front of me here, but the, the gist of it is that she sees, she sees the way she lives in her father's house as being essentially free and carefree. But if she were to go, and become Bainamunin's wife, she would become stifled. She would become, well, essentially just a, a slave to whatever his whims are, essentially. And, you know, it, it, there may be marriages like that, and that's unfortunate. But the, the purpose of that is, is not for that to be the case. That's for a man and a woman together to form something that separately they would not be able to do themselves, which on the one hand, is certainly to create children, but you can also do much more than that and achieve more than that together. And the thing about order in this case, it's almost that order didn't see this coming. Vainamonen didn't see this coming. Vainamonen didn't expect that Aino would do something so drastic. He just thought that on his merits, he would be worthy of Aino's affection and love. And it turns out that he wasn't. Because that's another theme that we dig into a lot is how women are actually the ones who choose their mates. And Vainamunen wasn't really doing anything to prove himself worthy in this particular case. And he was certainly complacent in his being, his being just, he was just going to be chosen by Aino and that would be fine, whether it be through social norm or whatever. And she ends up doing the only thing she has control over, which is her own life. And as far as 
complacency goes, that is one aspect of order that is a negative. It's, it's the staleness that occurs when you get into order, but you really don't do anything with it. You don't do anything with that order to rejuvenate it. And that seems to be dynamic in this case. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's fascinating. That's uh, yeah, one of my favorite um, think one of my favorite episodes in the Kalevala series that you both have covered so far. Well, Luke and Dan, it's been absolutely a pleasure speaking with you again. Um, you're always welcome here on the podcast. Um, thanks for taking the time to do this today. But before I let you go, um, you mentioned that you were now on Patreon, and I'll put a link to that in the description below. But where can people get a hold of you, and where can people uh, listen to your podcast? Yeah, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. First of all, we're the Northern Myths Podcast. Our website is northernmyths.com, and you can see all our episodes there and subscribe from there. We're, of course, on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, all those big ones. Or we're on virtually everything as far as we're aware. You can get a hold of us on social media. On Twitter, we're at Northern Myths, and we're on Twitter personally, at North Myth Luke and at North Myth Dan. We're on Facebook and Instagram as well, Northern Myths and Northern Myths Podcast, I believe, as well. And we also have a YouTube channel where we put up all of our episodes as well. So that's another way you can get in touch with us is comments on there. And so that's Northern Myths Podcast, youtube.com slash Northern Myths Podcast. And of course, then the Patreon. Yep. Uh, Patreon.com slash Northern Myths. If you'd like to support the show, that's the best way you can do that by far. And we definitely appreciate any support we receive and we do our best to give a little bit of extra value to anyone who does choose to support us. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, uh, again, Luke and Dan, thanks so much for joining me today. I look forward to continuing your series on the Kalevala. Um, So best of luck to you and thanks so much again. Thanks for having us on, Noah. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks again, Noah. It's been great. 